All right, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we've been going through the Thessalonians for a little while now. Uh, and we're going to keep on rolling. If you, don't, if you don't have a Bible, you need one. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses. Um, we have a few on the back bar. And I think it's page 640. If you would like one of those, you can just like raise your hand. And I'm sure Tim or somebody would be happy to give you one. Oh, look at him. He's on the ball. <clears throat> Thank you, Tim. Again, that's page 640 is where we're going to be. 1 Thessalonians 4. So a little bit of recap, since there are people here who haven't been uh, with us since the beginning of Thessalonians. Um, Thessalonians is a letter. There's actually two of them. We're going through the first one right now. Thessalonians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uh, used to be Saul. He used to be a guy who really, really, really hated Christians. uh, And he wanted them dead. And he would go around and make sure that that happened. Uh, He would kill Christians. He would travel from town to town and persecute them. We have at least one account of him uh, kind of presiding over the stoning of somebody, Stephen, in Acts 7. He he was a pretty, pretty bad guy, Paul. He was not into Christianity, Christ at all. He was a Jew. But something happened in his life that changed him. It kind of turned everything around. You can read about it in Acts 9. Uh, He was on his way to persecute some more Christians, to go kill some more Christians. And uh, he gets knocked off his horse, literally. Like he's he's riding through town. And uh, this big light comes and blinds him. And it's, it's Christ. And he identifies himself. And he says, why are you persecuting my church? And, and this event changes his life. It turns him around. And now instead of going around persecuting Christians, he's going around and preaching Christ now. So this is, this is huge. So he goes around. He starts lots of churches. He calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. That meant that he was a messenger to essentially everybody who wasn't a Jew. Um, everybody who hadn't really heard of of God and hadn't been anticipating a Messiah because Christ changed things. Whereas before, Judaism used to be pretty much just for Jews for the most part. Um, when Christ came, he very explicitly, very specifically kind of swung the doors open and said, this goes out to everybody. This goes out, not just, this isn't just for Jews, this is for the whole world, so you need to go out. And he told Paul, you need to go out and tell people about this. So that's what Paul did. He made it his life's ambition to go around and tell people about Christ. And, and this is a huge deal. He, he went out and reached to people who formerly he would not have regarded as anything really special or anything really nice. Um, but he, he really poured himself out for them. So he goes to this, Thessalonica, uh, this, this town called Thessalonica, and it's in kind of modern-day Greece, that area. And he, he preaches to them. They accept his word. They accept what he's saying about Christ. They start up a new church. They didn't have a church before. A bunch of people get together and start a church. But then he gets run out of town. Um, things don't go necessarily as he had planned the, the authorities come after him because they think that he's trying to rebel against the Roman Empire. They think that he is trying to start up something, like something anti-Roman. And Romans were in charge at that point in time. So the authorities are going to come after him. And they, in the middle of the night, they anticipate that this is going to happen. So in the middle of the night, they get out of town. And this letter is a letter going back to the Thessalonians. And Paul keeps talking about how he was concerned for them because they... He, he wasn't sure what they were going to think 
about the fact that he kind of, they didn't know who he was. He comes from nowhere, comes into their town, preaches this new message about Christ. They accept it. And then he leaves in the middle of the, in the, middle of the night. Kind of shady activity, you would think. Um, and he wants to kind of encourage them about who he is and about the message that he has. And this is one of the most positive letters in the New Testament. It might be the most positive letter in the New Testament because when he hears about them, he hears that they're doing well. And rather than kind of giving them a laundry list of things to do, oftentimes through most of Thessalonians, he's just saying, you guys are doing great. I just want to encourage you to do even more. I just want to encourage you to do well because you're believing in Christ and that's good. And I want to tell you specifically how you need to keep doing that. So a lot of letters in the New Testament aren't really like that, like uh, Corinthians. We talked about Corinthians just kind of a little bit. Um, With the Corinthian church, they were just tons of problems. Like you got guys sleeping with their stepmom and stuff like this. and, And like he had this list of things. It's just like you guys are messed up. And that's kind of the tone of Corinthians. And and he's just telling them about how much they've gotten wrong. Uh, and how the, they're not even doing communion the right way and like all these different things. Um, Thessalonians is not really like that. He's very, he's very affectionate in Thessalonians in a way that you don't see in a lot of other places because he really cares for these people and he's trying to demonstrate to them that he cares for them and he loves them. And that love isn't something that just he thought, you know, thought up one day. He has no reason to love them. He's a Jew. He's a, re- he's a really religious Jew. Most of those guys didn't really like the Gentiles that much. But he loves them because God loves them. And he wants to preach Christ to them. So he's, we're getting into the part, the part now. After the first three chapters where he's just kind of encouraging them, recapping, recapping what happened. In chapter 4, he uh, starts to exhort them. He starts to give them commands to tell them specific ways to live. So that's kind of where we are right now. And he's, he's doing this kind of in this context of this fatherly kind of affection. That's the way he paints it. For them. So in verse 9 is where we're going to start. And I'll just go ahead and read through verse 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We're just going to settle into those three verses today. We're not going to go very far. Um, Today, I think that God is going to challenge us through the words of Paul to have aspirations. And for some of us, this is a big deal because we have no aspirations. But for those of us that do, you may find yourself challenged to think less selfishly about your aspirations, about your ambitions, and more about those who are around you. Because that's kind of the context that he's talking here. He says right there at the beginning, concerning brotherly love, he wants to talk to them about unity, about church unity, about loving one another. And he doesn't just talk about love in this generic sense. He talks about brotherly love. The way that he frames it that way is because, or the reason that he frames it that way, is because the church is more than just like a club that you go to. The church is more than just a bunch of people who now think the same way. It's not just like a place where we get together and hang out and talk about the same things and enjoy the same things and then go home. He says it's much more than that. Uh, He uses the term brother 
And, and he does this all the time when he's referring to Christians. He refers to them as brothers. And this isn't just some kind of creepy, weird way for people to talk to each other in the church. Like, oh, hello, brother, and hello, sister. And like, just this really like odd, creepy way of talking to one another. It's not like that at all. You kind of think of that way with cults. Like, like they, they just they, they interact in a really weird way. Uh, what, what he's saying here... Whenever he talks to somebody, and when he refers to them as brother, sister, when he refers to God as father, when he's using this very familiar language, that, that's significant because that's not something that they did before. When I say they, I mean like the Jews in the Old Testament. They didn't really talk to God that way. They didn't really talk to each other as much that way. They didn't see themselves. They were a family. The Jews, were, in a sense, were a family. But they didn't see the relationship as much that way. Um, but when, when Christ came, he told people to pray. When they pray to God, he said, call God who he is. Call him by, as though he's your father, because he is. He says, our father who art in heaven. He says, you need to pray to God, you, just anybody. Pray to God as though he's your father. He, he, he created you. And, and now that you are his, now that you have been called as a Christian, you are his child. And, and the New Testament uses this kind of language all over the place. How now we, we are sons of God. We are, we are children of God. We are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And, and we actually consider Christ our brother. And, and we inherit, we, we, we have an inheritance that is kind of, not, I won't say equal to, but kind of alongside his. Since we're able to consider ourselves brothers, we consider ourselves brothers with Christ. And that enables us to, to partake in this inheritance from God. And, and this kind of familiar language is, is very important. He wants the church to see themselves as though they're not, they're not just a club, not just like a get-together, but you're a family. And he says that we need to love each other as family members. And he's saying to them, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Well, why are you writing to us, Paul? Um, he does want to encourage us. He says... Why don't they have anybody, why don't they need somebody to write to them? He says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing. So he's, he's saying that God himself is teaching them how to live, how to live in love for one another. So I guess when we, we, we've talked a lot about unity, a lot about family and church, just because it's all throughout the New Testament. Um, but this is interesting. This is not said much in the New Testament. The way he puts this, you've been taught by God this thing. So you don't need really desperately someone to come and tell you these things. When I see that, when I say when I when I see him saying you've been taught by God, what do you what does that mean? I think that that means that he and he just referenced this, they have the Holy Spirit in them. Back in verse 8, he gives them a warning, but he says there at the end of the warning, he says, God gives you his Holy Spirit. And then he talks about how they've been taught by God to live a certain way. I think that that's the Holy Spirit in these people. The Holy Spirit that is, is essentially the, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, who works in us. Christ talks about this at the beginning, uh, well, some places in uh, the Gospels and in Acts, that the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to live in and through them. And the Old Testament talked about this too, how... How people wouldn't have to have a rabbi, they wouldn't have to have this really educated PhD come and tell them what the Bible meant anymore because God was going to live in their hearts. That's the kind of thing that he's talking about. So when he says, you've been taught by God, he's talking about this Holy Spirit living in them, enabling them to live a different kind of life. So I guess when I, when I see that, 
what, what, what I think we ought to ask is, okay, he's, he's talking about this, this church, and he's pointing at them, and he's saying, man, you guys have been taught by God. When you see that, do you think that you can relate? Uh, is, would you say that the Holy Spirit is in you teaching you the things of God? A lot of Christians, you can ask them, like, what was your life like even two, three years ago? And, and a lot of Christians will tell you, steady Christians will tell you who are persevering, you know, even just two years ago, things were different. I don't think I, I really, I didn't know as much as I know now. And not just like in this thoughty kind of way, like, oh, I know this new fact. But in this kind of deep, spiritual way. I know that sounds ambiguous, but, but in a way that it, it actually changed them. Like, it wasn't just, oh, now I know how to do fractions. Like, it, now I know how to, to live more like Christ. It's really kind of the, the language there. I know how to live more like Christ than I did even two years ago. Can you, can you say that of yourself? Can you look back a couple of years and see how the Holy Spirit has worked in you to make you more like Christ? Paul is commending them not because they worked really hard to be good people, but because God is working in their lives. And he said that even at the beginning of the book, he, he talks about how they were called. And he knows that they were called because God worked in them. The Holy Spirit worked in them. He says, uh, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the evidence in their life is that God has taught them to be more like Christ. So is that... Is that us? Can you look at yourself and say the same thing? Can others look at you the way Paul is looking at them? Can others look at you, people who are in the church, people who know you, can they look at you and say the same thing? It might, I know that he's not commending this specifically of us in here and we're pulling out ideas here, but I think that it's worth at, you know, looking at these things. It might be worth asking somebody who knows you. A Christian preferably, a mature Christian, somebody who knows you and who you respect, if they have noticed God working in your life, I think that it's worth asking that question. Like we talk about uh, having mentors for all sorts of things. Uh, I think that it, this, that this wouldn't uh, involve a whole lot of investment. You're not like asking somebody, can you meet with me every week to talk about all these things? Just go up to somebody who, who you respect, who is a mature Christian and say, can you tell that God has worked in me, like the way that Paul's talking to these people, when he says you need to do, you need to live like Christ, but, but God has been teaching you to live like Christ. Can you talk about me that way? Do you see yourself that way? If you can't say yes, or they can't say yes, then I think it's worth asking yourself why. Why can we not say that God is working in your life. And what do you do about it? I think that a lot of this just involves submitting to the will of God and, and praying that he would 
come into your heart, that you would invite the Spirit of Christ into your life and that you would be sensitive to it and that you would cultivate that. There's this kind of like this, this partnership where, yes, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables you to do things, but at the same time, we have this responsibility to be sensitive to that and to not forsake the Holy Spirit, to not rebuke the Holy Spirit, to not say, get away from me, I don't need you, I don't want you. Like, there's this kind of mutual relationship where when God is working in you that, that you are inviting him and he is enabling you to do certain things. And I think that if you can say, you know, nobody can point to me and say that that's the case. Nobody can point to me and say that I, my life looks different, any different than it did before. And I can't really say that to myself. Then, then maybe that's an indication, and an important indication, that things need to change. Let's move on. There's plenty more to talk about. Um, so he says that they're, they're doing a good job he says, indeed, that is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He talked about before how their, how the, their witness had, had gone out to everybody and, and that they don't have to ask other people or, or inform them about what's going on in Thessalonica. He doesn't have to go to other places and say, well, here's what happened in Thessalonica. Because when he gets to other places, they're talking to him about the Thessalonians. Like, they're telling him, yeah, we heard that this is what happened in the church. And we heard that God has just changed those people and has created this church, this strong church, and has really done something there. They're telling Paul about it. And so he's, he's able to, to say to them that you have exhibited brotherly love to all the people throughout Macedonia. Um, people kind of debate about what he means there, and I'm not going to land there today. I'm not going to spend all my time kind of entertaining those, those ideas. Um, but... I think that essentially, if you really want a, a short answer, I think that it means that they were living like part of the church. And, and that might be ambiguous. If you want to talk more about that, let's go to CG. Let's talk about that uh, and figure out what that means. Um, but I think that that means that they were living like family members. They were living like they were now a part of the church. Not just their church, but in the broader church. Because the church is not just like, you know... <laughs> The individual hundreds of churches that are meeting in Johnson City today. Like each one of those is not its own standalone church isolated from everybody else in an absolute sense. They are all part of this one global church that God is building. That is talked about in Revelation when it talks about just all these believers coming before Christ. I think that they lived as though they were part of the big church. Not just their church on the corner. So... We're not going to get into all the details regarding that. I want to move on. Um, he says, this is the specific word that he has for them. After saying, you, you're doing a good job. God is teaching you. God is growing you. He still has things that he wants to say. Areas where he wants to encourage them. He says, this is uh, the end of verse 10. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. We see him doing this throughout Thessalonians. He's like, you guys are doing great. Just want to encourage you. Just want to tell you. But I want to let you know, keep doing it. Keep doing it. And I talked about this last week, how our, our culture is kind of like, or at least a lot of the way that a lot of leaders think is that the, squeak, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Uh, we, have, we have a saying for it. Um, the, 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 the problem areas are the ones where we want to focus. Like, oh, that's not right. I need to go fix that. That's not right. I need to go fix that. Like you're plugging holes in a, in a wall. And, and that's not really Paul's attitude as a pastor. He wants to make sure that they're doing all right or doing better. He wants to encourage them to do better even when they're already doing good. 
Sometimes we want to say, you know what, things are going all right for me. Things definitely aren't bad. Look at all the people who are doing worse than me. I'm in the 95th percentile here. Um, like, you want to make that comparison. But what Paul is saying, it's like, listen, you're never going to be absolutely like Christ. There's always room to improve when you're comparing yourself with Christ. So, so he doesn't just sit back and say, you know what, you guys are doing a great job. Skip that. Move on to something else because you don't really need to work on that anymore. Like, you've got brotherly love down. Move on. Like, sometimes we think that way and we think, wow, I've got this, I've got this down, so it's time to work on something else. Um, and if anybody challenges me on the other thing, I'll just, like, I'll tell them how great I am in all my different ways. Um, like, that's not Paul's attitude as a pastor. And I, I, I think that I get a lot from that, from a pastor who's saying, listen, you're doing great, but we could do even more. We could be more like Christ. Uh, but what does he say specifically? He says, we urge you to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Okay, so why is he talking about this? Some people think, and I don't agree, I'll just tell you, uh, I don't agree absolutely that this is the only reason. Uh, he's getting ready to talk about the end times. And some people think that he's, he's maybe trying to do a course correction for them, that maybe they've bought into this idea that uh, Jesus is coming like tomorrow. And if Jesus is coming tomorrow, I don't have to go to work today. And, and some people think that, that that makes sense, right? That you would have to combat that kind of attitude. And yeah, if that were the case, I think that it does make sense that you would have to say something like that. But it doesn't really like, I don't know that you get that just in the verses themselves. He actually kind of sets off the, the end times talk with, with kind of a, a, in a way that where he separates it. Where he says, okay, now on to this next thing. And within the context here, he's talking about brotherly love. When he was talking about... Um, sexual immorality last week he, one of the things that he said in there is uh verse six in chapter four that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter and now he's turning around and talking about brotherly love i think that this is within this context he's more focused on just talking about how they need to live in community how does how does the church need to live what do they need to look like what do people in there need to aspire to be how are they going to live together? You've got all these kinds of different people in the church. The church is not made up of one kind of person. The church is made up of all kinds of different people. And that's what makes the church awesome. Uh, is that you've got this, this diversity. And one of the things that we pray for here is diversity. Like, I would love to see people from all walks of life in here. Like old people, young people, people from other countries. Uh, people who are rich, people who are poor, like all, all kinds of people. I would love to see them in here because that's the picture that you get, again, in Revelation, uh, like 5, uh, five 9, and I think you see it in 7, 9, where there's just this uncountable crowd of people, innumerable people standing before Christ, and it says that they're from everywhere, from every tribe, tongue, nation, people, from everywhere. And Paul is speaking to them as though you're going to have people joining the church from everywhere. And we need to know how to treat one another. We need to know how to act. We need to know how to live. So he's, he's giving them some advice. And this is within this, this little paragraph here talking about brotherly love, which is interesting. And he says, 
You need to do three things. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. I feel like I had to dig a little bit. Like, what, what, is it, what does he mean there? Live quietly. Mind your own business. <laughs> do your job. Like, is he just telling us to, like, all just, like, go into our corner and, like, do whatever it is we do? Um, I think that it, I, I think that there's there's a little bit of nuance here that that is worth talking about rather than just saying be quiet go by, go be by yourself and do something with your hands that that's don't this isn't just directly literal I wouldn't <laughs> think um, I think that he's he's speaking into their cultural context. And a lot of the, I read commentaries, there's, there's a lot of ideas about, you know, what maybe he's trying to kind of converse about within their cultural context. Um, a couple of common themes come up, though. Um, when he says, live quietly, I think that what that means is, you are not out and about trying to make a name for yourself. The, the Roman world back then was really big on um, trying to make a name for yourself, essentially. The, the rich people, the wealthy people, the people of means would, um, would set up relationships that would bring themselves good repute. And by that I mean like they make them popular. Like, if, if the, they knew that some important politician was going to come into town, then they might say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend some money, and I'm going to construct, I'm going to have a, a statue commissioned for so-and-so from out of my bankroll, so that when they get here, they're going to be like, oh, wow, look at this, look at this statue. that you, you created this for me? And then, like, you would get, like, this political kind of arrangement where it's like, I'm going to scratch your back, you're going to scratch my back, things are going to be awesome, uh, I'm going to get a better reputation, I'm going to get a name for myself. Uh, there were a lot of those kinds of relationships inside of the Roman Empire. But I think that what he's saying here, when he says live quietly, I think that the idea here is, is, is don't live to proclaim your name. Don't live to proclaim your fame. When you aspire, do you have aspirations? A lot of us do. Uh, when you aspire to something, don't aspire to make your name big and up in lights and up in front of everybody else saying, ooh, ah, oh, look at that person, they're amazing. I think that that's kind of the idea that he's talking about here. When he's saying live quietly. I think another thing that you could kind of get from this is... You see kind of cross-references and things that point to other points of advice that are similar to this, where he's saying, with regards to brotherly love, don't go around looking for a fight. And again, this is related to, to building up yourself. Um, a lot of us are argumentative. I say us. Uh, a lot of us are argumentative, and, and like we just love to, to be the smart one, love to be the person who's right, love to be the person who's in control. And so we, we really are looking for those opportunities to tell other people how smart we are or how right we are or how good we are at a certain thing. And, and you, you want everybody to notice. Like you want, you're trying to set up this, this kind of relationship where it's like, no, you're down here and I'm right here. 
Like, know your place. Like, that's, that's the idea. And we go around trying to puff ourselves up and make something out of ourselves. But the one thing that you'll notice is that anytime you go see somebody in, in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, who is all about making a lot of themselves, making a name for themselves, being just the best of the best and everybody knows about it, God never really gets excited about those, uh, those situations, those attitudes. Um, we just read recently Babel, right? The Tower of Babel. On Sunday nights, we just read through the Bible, and we've been going through Genesis. So we read through Babel, and one of the big problems with the people who built the Tower of Babel wasn't that they were too into big towers. It was that they, their whole motivation is, we, we're going to set up a kingdom for ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves, and we're going to be awesome. We're going to be great. And everybody's going to look around and say, wow, look at them. And, that was part of, and God said, no. We're going to break this up and changes all their languages so that they can't even work together anymore. They can't come together and work on a project. They've all got to scatter. Anytime anybody says, I'm going to make a name for myself, God says, no, you're not. No, you're not. Uh, my name is what is important. So when, when, we, when we think about, like, what are our aspirations? What kind of life do you aspire to live? Are all of your decisions kind of for the sake of becoming the most well-known musician, the, the most well-known physician, the most well-known computer programmer, the most, I don't know if I'm hitting everybody here. There's a lot of jobs out there, obviously. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, <clears throat> do you want to be the, the best? Do you want everybody to know you're the best? Do you want to make something of yourself? Or do you want to let everybody know through arguing and politics and all this other thing, all these other things, that you are the best? I, he's telling us to aspire to live quietly. Because here's the thing. Um, you are known by God. And you don't have to impress him in order to get his attention. Like, he loves you. He called you out. Gave you his Holy Spirit. Commands you to walk in a certain way. To live like Christ. And, and we don't have to like make a whole lot of ourselves to try to get God's attention. And, and when, you have, when you have the doting affection of the creator and sustainer of the universe, what more do you need? Like, do you need the affirmation of millions of people who love that one song you made for, for 15 days and then forgot about you? Um, like, do you need that when you have God who already knows everything there is to know about you, the bad stuff too, not just the way you present yourself in front of other people, and he still loves you? Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. I'm not going to get into this in depth, I don't think, because later on in 2 Thessalonians, I feel like he gives a little bit more on this. Um, but I think that kind of the idea here is that um, your job is not to get into everybody else's business, but to have a business of your own. By that, I don't mean that you have to go start a small business, but that you ought to have work that you are doing. Just because you're busy, and he talks about this again more in, in 2 Thessalonians, just because you're busy doesn't mean that you're being productive or that you are doing anything ultimately worthwhile. 
And he goes after those people a little bit more later. So I'm not going to, I want to save that for later. Um, but he says, don't, don't be busybodies. A lot of people can say, man, I'm, I'm working hard here. It's like, no, you're really just kind of moving around, not ever investing in anything, uh, just kind of checking out what everybody else is doing, sitting back, not getting involved in your own work. But he says, mind your own affairs. Like, have, have an aspiration to have something to take care of. Like your own, your own household, your own, your own job, your own work. Something to do and something to invest in. And he says, aspire to work with your hands. I don't think that that means that every one of us who's not working a job where we use our hands primarily needs to uh, quit and go get a different job. Um, I think that what he's trying to do is, again, speak into that culture um, where they didn't really value um, manual labor. There, uh, I, I read, there's a historian who lived kind of, kind of a little bit later, but was a contemporary mostly of Paul, um, named Plutarch. He, he wrote about this culture that, uh, while we delight in the work of craftsmen and artisans, we despise the workmen. It does not necessarily follow that if the work delights you with its graces, the one who wrought it is worthy of your esteem. What that means is, they... they there was this kind of cultural um, impression that manual labor was for lesser folk. And that even if they did things that were awesome, like if they built something that was just everybody, everybody really liked that thing, that doesn't mean that anybody's running after their, their jobs. Like they're not excited to go work that job. And I feel like we have, uh, we have a similar culture. I remember watching a documentary. I feel like this was Vice News, but I can't remember. They were talking about uh, dairy farms in New York and how the only people they could get to work the dairy farms were foreign workers, illegal workers. And this was a problem. And, and they were just trying to figure out what's the problem. Why can't, why are there only illegal workers? Why are so many illegal workers coming in here? Why are the employers allowing that to happen? Well, it's because they couldn't find other people to work. Um, <clears throat> and, and they did more than just like browse some statistics to make this decision. They did some work and figured this out. Now, I think that all of us would probably say that we like dairy, right? Yeah, <coughs> dairy. You like milk. You like yogurt, cream, ice cream, cheese. cheese. We just hit the whole room. <laughs> cheese. You love cheese. Like all of those things you love. And if someone were to tell you, you know what, I, we're not going to have dairy anymore. You might flip out. I think the whole world would like flip out. No dairy. Unthinkable. We have to stop this. Whatever terrorists are in charge of this, we have to stop it. Sounds like a good movie premise. Um, <clears throat> so everybody loves dairy. But nobody wants to work with cows. And they were, these guys that did this little, this little news report, they go out to this labor office where people are coming in all day long to try to find jobs. Like they would come, talk to a government official or somebody, uh, some hiring agency, and they would try to fit them with a good job. These are guys that didn't have a whole lot, didn't have a whole lot to work with. 
Um, but they needed a job. So they're coming to this place. And these reporters sit outside of the place waiting for the guys to come out and say, hey, do you have any luck? No, not really. Well, let me tell you what. There is a dairy farm that, that is like several miles from here that will accept unskilled workers to come and work with cows and do all these things. And they were like, no, no, I will not take that job. Some of us would rather not work than to work at a restaurant or in retail or changing diapers. Not everybody needs to work with kids, though. Um, with animals. Uh, some of us would rather not work than to work in environments that we think less of. And the only guys who walked up that were saying yes, they, you know, it was like 10% of people that they were, at, that they were offering this to. Uh, but a lot of them were the foreign workers who couldn't get work anywhere else. And they were like, yeah, we'll work that job. And so that's how they ended up working these because they couldn't get anybody to work these jobs. And so when Paul's saying, hey, you need, to, you need to aspire to work, even if it means, or even especially if it means, working with your hands, getting in there, getting dirty, and doing something. Because the Romans thought, those people are less than. They are worse than me. Like, it's great. I love dairy, but there's no chance I'm going to be scooping poop out from the back of a cow. Like, that is not going to happen. Paul is saying that... We ought to be willing to aspire to work even if it means you have a dirty job. Even if it means you have a job that other people perceive as being less than. And, that, and, and he's, he's using that word aspire. Like not just, not just that, oh, be willing to take this job if it's a last resort. But he's saying aspire. Aspire to do work. And don't look down on other people or don't look down on the work that is done that we see as less than, as unthinkable for us. That's the kind of work that other people do, but not me. Like, don't, don't think that way. So, so he's giving us these things, aspire to live quietly. Don't aspire to be famous. Aspire to have your own work. Aspire to work and do something well, no matter what it is. No matter if it's taking care of cows and it's dirty and nasty and stinky. Or, or some other thing that you think is just the worst. That's not a failure in and of itself. Like some people just resign themselves to failure. Like, oh, I'm a failure because I've got this job. And other people want to remind them that they are too. Um, don't, don't think that way about work. Work is something that was given to us by God before the fall. And you notice that God himself worked. Like God, the one person who didn't have to work, worked. When it talks about the Sabbath, it talks about him resting from his work. And all of us are super happy that God works. Right? Like, if, we, if God didn't work, we wouldn't work, if that makes sense. Like, we wouldn't live. We wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have things to be appreciative of. We wouldn't have Christianity. We wouldn't have Christ. We wouldn't have a church. He wouldn't be working in us. Like, God works. And he set it up. And he did it before the fall. And he gave Adam work to do before the fall. And he said, here you go. Here's your job. Unfortunately for us, work has been cursed since the fall. 
And God said, now you will earn your living by the sweat of your brow, by like tough toil. Your, your work is going to work against you. And it's not going to last. And that is, that's the bad news. But, but that doesn't really exempt us from working or from having a work ethic. Like work is something that was given to us by God. And we can do good work even though our work is cursed. And even though it sometimes it's dirty. I had to clean a toilet out yesterday. And I don't know why I brought it up because it just makes me sick. <laughs> it was not good, guys. Got little babies throwing things into toilets. You have to take the whole thing up. I don't appreciate it. But I love my family and I love my kids. So I am willing to get down and do that work because I love them. And that's what he's saying here. This is in the context of brotherly love. Like, you need to have an aspiration. You need to do some work, no matter what the work is, so that nobody, so that you don't depend on anybody, so that you're not a bum, and so that everybody's having to do your work for you. This is something that you do out of love. And some people feel so stifled. Like, everybody expects me to be a lawyer, a doctor, and only one of us has succeeded at that. Uh, and, or, or some high-paying job, like an executive or something like that, and I just can't deal with that pressure. Well, listen, Paul's not saying go out there and be the CEO of Microsoft or anything like that. He's saying go get a job. Like, just go do something. Something that everybody else would be like, man, that's not that great. But you could point to and say, listen, I'm doing this because it is my God-given responsibility to work, and so I'm going to work. And I'm going to do the kind of job that other people may not praise me over, but I'm not really concerned about it because I'm living quietly. Like, I'm not in it to get your praise so that you can tell me I'm, I'm amazing. Like, that's not why I work. I work because I love people. I love my family. I love the church around me. I want to participate. I want to invest. I want to produce. I don't want to just sit back and take it all in and let everybody else do my work for me. He's saying, work so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on nobody. All right, so here's the deal. Christ is our example in this. <clears throat> Christ came down and worked. Like did the dirty work of being around sinners. Like wh however bad I feel about people who have to deal with, with cow dung all day long. Like that, God compares our righteousness to like filthiness. Or, or yeah, or even our righteousness to filthiness. Christ came to live among sinners among the filth of us, of, of our sin. And, and he came to do work. We talk about, again, we wouldn't exist if Christ didn't come down here and do work. If he didn't humble himself. Everybody knows Philippians 2, right? Or you've heard it a whole lot. Um, Philippians 2. I'll get there eventually. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, one who works, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is our example in this. He came down, he did work in a dirty environment because he was humble, because he loved us. And Paul is saying, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you love those around you, if you then you will humble yourself like Christ has humbled himself and you will get down and do some work. Not, not to get famous and not to get rich, but just to be producing. And, and Christ is our example in this. And in that working, we aren't working to try to impress God. I already said this. But the point isn't so that you'll like check off the box and be able to brag in front of God saying, man, look at all the work that I did. That's not the point. The point is obedience. The point is, is not thinking of yourself. The point is thinking about other people first. Because we can't work hard enough to, to, to become righteous. We can't work hard enough to improve ourselves. Like, we're going to die in the end. And our work is cursed. And everything that we do, it's not going to last apart from what Christ does in us. Apart from what we laid down for the sake of Christ. So, when we look at these things, again, it's not just like a, a list of chores to do. It's, it's something that we do before God as an act of obedience and humility and saying, it's not glorious and it's not going to get me anything real nice. I'm not going to drive a Bentley any time in my life, most likely. Um, but that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for Christ. So, I pray that we will take something from this. We will ask ourselves, is God teaching me? Have, has my life changed in the last two years? Can people say that the Holy Spirit is at work in me? And do I have aspirations at all? If not, we need to get some. And Paul's ready to give you some. Do some work, not for yourself, but for other people. And do it in the name of Christ. You're not working for yourself. We're working because our Savior, who didn't have to do anything for us, out of love, came and worked for us. So we do the same thing in response. So now we're going to respond. All right, let's pray. Father God, these are good words, but they're, they're kind of hard words. Um, they require something of us. They require that we perhaps be different people or do different things than we have done in the past. And it's challenging. And it's not necessarily glorious. But we're not here for our own glory. We're here for your glory. And I pray that that, that would be real to us. And that you would teach us what it means to have 
truly worthy aspirations. And that you would teach us how to act on those for the sake of your name. And for the sake of our brothers and sisters. For the sake of the church. For the sake of our witness. So that other people could look at us and say, they're working hard no matter what work they do. Because they love each other and they love Christ. I pray that that would be our witness and that you would change us in whatever ways you need to in order to make that happen. And I pray that we would have these conversations, that we would go out from here and that we would talk to people who we trust, who know us, who are mature spiritually, Christians, and we would ask them, can you tell that God is working in my life? How? Why? Why not? And I pray that we would ask ourselves whether we have aspirations that have been given to us by God or whether we have aspirations that we've given ourselves based on cultural standards. I pray that during this time you would cause us to respond, that our voices would do some work and praise your name, and and that we would have joy from the Holy Spirit even when we know there's work to be done and even when we know it's hard. And in Jesus' name, amen.